Well, good morning, my beautiful church. Um, so grateful to be opening the Word of God with you. You can turn your Bibles to Titus 3. And let me just kind of continue the story in Sharon's life. Um, two weeks ago, I had the joy of officiating Sharon's daughter's wedding, Abby, um, to her now husband, Romario, who was with us in the first service. And uh, God is just continuing to work in her family's life. Um, there in Jamaica is Pastor James shared right now. And um, it's just been so fun and so encouraging to see the Spirit of God move in lives through the ministry of this church. And really, where we, where we are right now in this series is we're getting into the heart of the why. Why do we need to keep telling our story? It, we've got to do more than just do a project. I, I can't express that enough. And we have to want more for our church than simply to just add seats into an auditorium. Um, there's many ways that you can congregate a lot of people into a room. Uh, it's much more difficult, though, to create a church where the radical love of God is operating through the people of God. And so we feel called as a church to tell our story, and there are three audiences on our hearts. Our community, which we're going to talk about this morning, to one another, our family, and to the future. Now let's just get into this idea of community this morning. It's been said that you're either growing or dying. Have you heard that before? I don't know where it was first originated, who first said it, someone probably smarter than me. Um, but I really agree with that statement. And God used a little book a couple of years ago written by author Stephen Vyers called Loving Your Community to Keep Me on the Growing Path. You see, Vyers begins and he tells this really just powerful anecdote to help us see the church and our need to love the community. He was involved in a bicycle race in the state of Indiana. Thousands of cyclists are involved. It's called the annual rain ride. So riding across Indiana, that's the acronym. And they would start on the Illinois border, go 160 miles to the Ohio border. Now this is a wholesome community event. Everybody gets involved. All along the way, there's little stations and stops for the riders to grab beverages and high-energy snacks. The loved ones will station themselves strategically so they can cheer the riders on. And there's even a little friendly uh, competition with the hospitality. You know, communities, who can put on the just display, who can love the riders in the best sort of way. He's riding along this route, and he comes towards the end of the ride and notices this beautiful local church right in the middle of the route. And he's thinking to himself, what an opportunity. You could have people stationed outside. You could have a big sign that says free parking in our parking lot. But instead of seeing that, what he sees is a man on a mission. The man has a sawhorse with a sign on it, and he's carefully dragging it to the front entrance of the parking lot. And he's thinking to himself, oh my goodness, I hope that sign doesn't say what I think it's going to say. And of course, it says what he thinks it's going to say. No 
parking allowed here. Mm. Now, we don't know all the story. Let's be fair, it could be that the church was holding an event in a couple of hours, and I would just suggest, you know, mildly that maybe that's a problem in and of itself if that's happening. Um, but more than likely, Virus says that the church, that church, has adopted an attitude that many local churches, and the way that it expresses itself is the church says no unless it must say yes to the community. Complex issue. Why has the church become so risk-adverse towards the community? Why is the church seeming to go inside of its shell when the church is called a local church after all? Why does the church not perceive itself as part of the community? Weyer's thesis is very simple. He says, wise churches will pour their resources into their local community. They will adopt the complete opposite posture. They will say yes, unless they have to say no. Now, this reminds me of an encouragement that we receive in the scriptures through the book of Titus. And what I love about this book of the Bible is it teaches us how the church needs to understand its context. We actually did a series in this book about a year ago, and here's a little fun fact. This book was written to Titus, who is ministering to Crete, and on the Sunday that Pastor James started this series, Katie and I were physically on the island of Crete. Now, you just can't make this kind of stuff up. I'd like to point out the attire that I am wearing. It's very cool. You got the polo. You've got the swim trunks. Uh, we were just so blessed to be looking at the church of Titus on Crete as the church was in the scriptures learning about this. Now, Paul is describing these people to Titus, and he says this of the people. The Cretans, according to their own prophets are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then he goes on and he says, and this testimony is true. Whoa, he's not pulling any punches. Now you might think, well, if he's talking about them like that, he's going to counsel Titus to create a say-no church. But that's not what he does. He talks to Titus through this little letter. He tells them you've got to find creative ways to love these people. You need to express tangible acts of love through what he calls good works or good deeds. Titus, you've got to create a say yes kind of church. Now, we're going to talk about the force behind that a little later on in the sermon. But for now, let's ask the question, what is our context and why do we need to know what our context is? I want to suggest that in modern parlance, our context is our zip code. It's our backyard, uh, the way that the Bible expresses it. And we'll explain this a little further in just a second. It's your neighbor. I, as I look at the present state of the local church, I actually believe that the church in some ways, the local church has lost a little bit of its localness. Why does that happen? Well, there's a lot of reasons. One of the big reasons is the advent of the automobile. I can hop into a car, I can drive 40 miles to my church, 
And I can kind of tailor specific what kind of church I want to be a part of. Now, there's good elements to that. There's bad elements to that. But whatever it is, it's what we're dealing with. Let me ask you a question, though. Why does God in the Bible say, you are to love your neighbor instead of saying to you, you are to love everyone? Ever thought about that? I mean, it's, it's kind of an interesting question because if God were to say, I want all of you to love everyone, well, that gets pretty clear. We don't have, you know, any wiggle room anymore for things like discrimination and racism. At least we can't get there through understanding the Bible, right? Everyone, we wouldn't have Jesus answering a question in the Gospels where someone comes to him and says, Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. If we're told to love everyone, everything gets pretty clear. And yet God gets, he goes a totally different direction. Neighbor. Why? Well, I want to argue this morning that biblical love requires specificity. It's one thing to love people in general. You can get really global and just say, I love everyone. Let's say that together. It feels really good. I love everyone. Much more difficult to say, I love the guy that just cut me off on the road. Much more difficult to say, I love the neighbor who's letting their lawn go out of control across the street and making my property value go down. Much more difficult to love the person in church that's a little prickly every Sunday morning. It's much different to love generally than specifically. Think about the problems in our own backyard. In general, I, it breaks my heart that people go hungry. Okay, okay, I agree. But right now as I say that, I'm floating at somewhere in the neighborhood of 60,000 feet in the air and I'm looking down at the world and I'm just seeing the globe as one giant blob of hungry. It's a lot more specific to say, it breaks my heart that 40 or 50 kids in my neighborhood school are going hungry. See, when we get specific, we're more prone to love. I love this story of Cape Kidmills for that very reason. A little local church, Grace Church in Dennis. A pastor, Dave Johnson, a member, David Burns, are just asking a question. How can we love our neighbor well? They come to discern that there are kids in their own backyard going hungry at school. And so what do they do? The church decides to own the problem. They start packing backpacks. They start delivering backpacks to school. They start making sure that kids are not showing up to school Monday hungry. What's the problem with kids coming to school mon uh, on Monday hungry? Well, have you ever tried to like focus on a book or study something complex while you're hungry? It's not easy. Or what about building relationships? It's hard to relate to people even when you're hungry. So they do this. And now, seven years later, God just continues to bless that organization and grow it. They're in 25 local schools across the Cape. Do you think perhaps that's why God asks you and me to be involved in a local church, to be vitally present in my local church? As a Christian, I could. I mean, I could be involved in seven local churches at the same time. But if I'm doing that, I'm somewhat 
hovering over the local church. Love needs to get more specific. Love needs to see faces and know names. Love needs to be consistent. Love needs to sometimes say, you know, I stepped on your toes and I'm sorry for doing that. Love needs to see a need and respond to a need. That's why the church has to know its context. In the case of Titus, the context is Crete. Our case, the context begins at 824 Main Street. We've chosen to keep the context here. So let's take this a step further. We talked about how challenging it is to love specifically. Why is that? Well, when you're loving at the global level, you're never swimming in the problems that love must attend to. But when you get specific, when you swim in the soup of the brokenness and mess of the culture you live in, well, now it actually personally affects you. So Paul takes us in Titus chapter 3, and he starts talking to Titus about the things that have to shape the church's love if they're going to love the people of Crete well. He begins in verses 1 and 2. Let me read this to you. He says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Again, why does Paul need to give these reminders to a bunch of Christians who are just good people, and they're just going to love everyone, right? They follow Jesus. Of course they're going to do this stuff. Well, it turns out that Christians, like anyone else, can be prone towards adopting unhealthy attitudes. It's just downright true. What are some unhealthy attitudes that we might adopt today? I want to argue two. One is ignorance. Now, some of you are pushing back on that right now, and you're like, that's not an attitude, Rob. That's a state of being. If you don't know something, you can't do anything about it. And I'd like to just kind of parry back a little bit toward you and say, I suggest that ignorance is often a choice we make. We choose not to learn. We choose not to gain more information because when I understand, well, now I feel responsible. I told you this story about a Christian man last year who called code enforcement on his neighbor. I have to say, I get it. Walk a mile in his shoes. He's looking across the street. The garage door is barely hanging on two broken down cars in the driveway, the grass, very tall, dilapidated state. I've had neighbors like this before. I've looked over to my right and my left and thought to myself, boy, if you don't have a lawnmower, you can just have mine. I'll go buy another one. In fact, if you don't have the time to do it, I'll do it for you. So he calls code enforcement. And then he's walking down in his neighborhood he meets another neighbor and he hears more to the story. It turns out that she's just quit her job in recent months and she's been at the hospital 24 hours a day 
for months because her mom is dying of cancer. She doesn't care about the stupid garage door. She's being present for her mom. Have you ever had a dynamic where you learned more information and then felt like a jerk afterwards? Oh, I've been there. That's when God starts working on us, isn't it? He changes the heart. And here you have this man who moves from a position of ignorance to a position of understanding. He moves from reporting his neighbor to coordinating his neighbors to help with the situation. Second attitude, fear. Fear is pervasive in our culture. Fear is the reason why I believe the local church is saying no. Fear, if you take a little bit of ignorance and you mix it in with a lot of fear, you have created this recipe where you turn neighbors into strangers. Don't you see this happening in society? People are becoming strangers more and more, putting up privacy fences. We might walk past our next door stranger and say hi to them, but we're not inviting them into our house. We look at them as potential threats, not as potential friends. In fact, I've experienced this regularly. I'm out walking in mornings because I'm, you know, pretty sedentary in my role. So I've got to get out and exercise a little bit. And I've noticed that when I'm walking in this direction, my neighbor's walking in this direction, and we get to about 30 yards almost every single time they cross the street. And then we start walking. And then when you hit that awkward bubble where it's like about time to say yes, you look over and you're like, hey. But I'm not going to engage them any more than that because after all, they're probably a serial killer, right? (laughs) So how do you break down the walls of distrust that turn neighbors into strangers? I could give you a bunch of tips on emotional intelligence. I could tell you to ask good questions. I could tell you to invite them into your home. But I think the Bible gives us a much better solution. It tells us that you must become mesmerized by the love of God. The more you feel like God loves you, the more you're going to feel love towards your neighbor. And here's what's even crazier about this. And then the more you extend love to your neighbor, the more you're going to feel like God loves you. You know, John says in 1 John 4, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And I think the love he's talking about is in both horizons of love, the love of God for us. We're not afraid of his judgment any longer. And then also the love for our neighbor. We're so overwhelmed with the love of God that we want to love them better. He says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You see, our story to our community will only be told well as we more deeply appropriate the radical love of God. How do you do that? Well, Paul says you got to start with a place of remembering Remember, our story is rooted in the gospel story. God loved us. God came to us while we were still strangers. Look at verse 3. 
For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now, let's just pause right here and let's understand something about biblical theology. When the Bible is talking about our sinful state before Christ, it is not because the Bible holds a low view on human beings. In fact, the Bible holds the highest view on humanity that there is. Now, some people talk about sin and they talk about it in such a way that it's meant to pulverize you into the ground and make you feel worthless. They call that worm theology. I don't agree with that. No, as I look at sinfulness, it's a great tragedy in the Bible. Why is that? Because it makes us unlovely. We're not achieving the potential that God has created us to achieve in the world. And yet the Bible says you're so worth loving. Why? Because you were made in the image of God. You have this untapped potential for love and kindness and gentleness and goodness and the sinful state that we find ourselves in apart from the grace of God makes us a husk of what we could be and should be. And God is not pleased with that. So what does God do? Well, Paul continues. We're not lovely, yet we're worth loving. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Remember, we're not living up to our potential. We're not going to change that. Our sinful state makes it to where we're a husk of what we could be or should be. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Get this. Here's what God does. You're so worth loving that the God of the universe who has all power, might, and riches, condescends himself in the person of Jesus. God takes on flesh and he moves into the neighborhood with a bunch of strangers and he becomes that next door neighbor that just won't let up. He's knocking on your door asking for a cup of sugar. He's inviting you over to his place. He's taking up residence where you live and demonstrating to you the law, love your neighbor as yourself. He goes even further. He extends grace and mercy. The washing of the regeneration, talking about this idea that Jesus laid down his life on the cross for your sins, and then we're given this gracious gift of the Holy Spirit who takes up residence in us. Not only does God want you, but he wants to be in close relationship with you. He dwells with you. And the Holy Spirit, as he works on you, the Bible says takes you from one degree of glory to the next, meaning he is making you even better than what you once were. 
2 Corinthians 5.17 says it like this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, meaning even better than the old one. So what does this grace do? This grace changes us. It changes how we define love. It changes who we understand to be lovable. It changes the ways that we actually physically practice love towards others. After Paul tells us this gospel, he goes into verse 8, and he says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to what? Good works. Tangible expressions of love. His message to Titus, if we wanted to summarize it, is that if you want to build a church that loves rightly, you must preach the gospel regularly. The church will adopt the heart of God if you do that. I believe there's a powerful formula that we can create as a church, and the way I express it is like this. Gospel plus time always results in radical acts of love. Gospel plus time always results in radical acts of love. Let's break this down a little bit. If we want to tell our story well, we have to put this into practice. We begin with gospel. Remember, gospel reminds us to adopt the grace and mercy, the very heart of God. So we look out at our community. We come to the understanding that, yes, there is so much unloveliness associated with sin, right? War is unlovely. Human trafficking, unlovely. But the way that I speak to my neighbor sometimes is unlovely too. So how does grace respond to unloveliness? Well, grace chooses to see more than the unloveliness. It doesn't deny the unloveliness. It doesn't sweep it under the rug. But grace looks at the person who's addicted, and it says that person is more than an addict. Or the woman who is stolen and she's incarcerated, it says she's more than a thief. Or the person who's been living out on the streets, they're more than homeless. Grace sees the image of God in every single human being. Grace always sees more. I was listening to seasoned pastor Ray Ortland recently. He was providing counsel to younger pastors about how do you, you know, kind of create a culture of grace in your church. And one of the pastors asked this question. They said, well, how do you deal with people who are presenting all kinds of like unlovely behaviors in the church and even outside of the church. Ortland was brilliant how he addressed this. He says, well, the, press the question as presented is regrettable. Why? Well, because if you look at John 13, Jesus didn't say to his disciple, deal with one another as I have dealt with you, that makes human beings a problem that I have to manage. No, Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. In other words, Ortland's like, what if we just loved these people? And then he goes on and he says this, and this just blew up my mind. If we're serious about the gospel, 
We're going to love those people, and get this, we're going to enjoy them and respect them and include them to the maximum degree that we are capable of. Do you hear what grace does? Grace says yes. It wants to lead with yes. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't things that grace says no to. Grace never says yes to lies. But grace's heart is to include and to say yes as its posture. So that is gospel. But what about gospel plus time? What does time do for us? What does time remind us of? Well, listen to Romans 2.4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Consistency, time, patience, kindness. These are all powerful agents in the process of change, so powerful. Just consistency and time alone. I was listening to a story of a woman who was just sick and tired of the brokenness on her reservation. Her reservation had been experiencing just cyclical generational alcoholism that was breaking families apart, destroying relationships, leaving people from becoming all that they could be and should be. She was going through this herself. So she gets sick and tired of being sick and tired. She decides that she needs to start a support group. So she starts mobilizing, goes around the reservation, knocks on doors, come join my support group. Some of the people just laugh at her. Some shut the door in her face. She persists. She schedules a little meeting space and sets up the chairs and brews the coffee, gets her children babysat so that she can be present and available. And get this, for three years, shows up to this space and not one person comes. I was thinking about that. I was like, what is my level of conviction? If I showed up to this place like two weeks consecutive and no one showed up, I would be like crying myself to sleep at night, I think. She keeps showing up, and then a dribble of people starts coming to the meeting, and then the meeting starts getting packed, and then 10 years down the road, a generational brokenness on a reservation starts changing. That's consistency plus time, but just think about how much more powerful gospel plus time is. Can I ask you to start doing something as a church? Can we stop measuring the effectiveness of the local church based off of a timestamp of one year in time? Whenever I hear people talking about whether or not we're successful or failing as a church, it's all based on, well, last week there was a lot of people, and this week there's fewer people, and then the next week there was a lot, and we're just kind of like swinging back and forth and looking at gospel ministry no further than the tip of our nose. What if we got bigger? 
What if we started thinking about 188 years of ministry? You there with me yet? How many people have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ in the walls of these church in that amount of time? How many people have started following Jesus? How many people have been baptized over at Dallas's Beach? You know, we get sometimes excited if 10 people get baptized, but I think probably hundreds, even thousands have been baptized. I don't know. How many people have gone into the mission field or into Christian leadership or just feel called to be a leader in the community because of the ministry of this church? I'm telling you, when you go big, when you see gospel plus time, you really see the power of God at work in the life of a church. So gospel plus time, and the result is radical love. Remember, God's grace works on us, and he grows our hearts. And I want to suggest this morning again, the heart, as it adopts the heart of God, craves specificity. Let me just make a couple of obvious statements for you. God has not placed this church in Boston. Anyone felt confused by that yet? He hasn't placed us in Sandwich. Uh, He hasn't placed us in Zimbabwe. He's placed us at 824 Main Street. So our Great Commission story begins here from this place. And I think that when we stand in front of Jesus, I think he's going to ask us a very direct question. I think Jesus is going to say, did you love your Osterville neighbors well? And we're going to be like, Jesus, I don't know. That's been a head scratcher for us. I mean, we've been a church for a long time in this place. You look at our congregation and we don't necessarily have Tons of members from Osterville. How do we love these Osterville people well? How do we do this? I think it's just a lot simpler. And the Bible gives us a very, very powerful means that we can do this and a means that local churches often overlook. And I would boil it down to one word. Hospitality. Romans 15, 7 says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Hebrews 13, 1 and 2 says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Do you sense the glory in this? Uh, Rosaria Butterfield gave us this powerful image of gospel ministry. She said this, the gospel comes with a house key. It's so earthy, it's so mundane, but here's what I think God wants us to do as a church. He wants us to stop thinking about, well, how can I do all of these really big things for God and start thinking, well, how can I do the small things for God better? This involves welcoming people. This involves telling people, listen, you're welcome around my fire. Uh, When you extend human uh, or hospitality to a person, you're extending basic human dignity to them. You're saying to them, you're welcome here. You matter. You belong here. And let me just say this, all of you belong here in this place. 
As you look at this concept that we prayed over for literally two years, one of the big things on our heart as we were praying, we said, God, make this project about more than us. We don't want to just be the church that identifies our own problems and our own needs. No, we want to think about our context and love this context well. So what we incorporated in the design was what we just call thresholds of invitation. It's hospitality. It's come here, sit by my fire, be warm, be filled in the name of Christ. We love you. We care. Now, I just want to say that if we do this and we're putting a lot of money into this, I am not willing to promise you that if we do this, people from Osterville will walk through our doors and sit in these chairs. I pray they do. I want them to do that badly. But if that's why we're doing it, I don't think that's a great reason. I think that's actually transactional. I think that's doing something because you want something from people. Instead, what if we just extended the warm handshake of Christ to people, no matter whether or not they walk through the doors of our church? What if we just said, we want to love you? I don't see anywhere in Scripture where it tells me, love people if they affiliate with you. In fact, I can show you where it says, don't do that. So we just want to love you. We want to be present. We want to care for you. We want to be good neighbors. And then what do we do from there? We trust. Gospel plus time. I promise you, I, I'm watching God do incredible things through gospel plus time. He will do incredible things through this church. Let's pray. Lord, as we embark on this next step of who we are as a church as we tell our story. We ask, God, that you would do this marvelous work in us that only you can do. That your grace would shape us and mold us into the radical love of Christ for, toward others. We pray that as a church, that we would love our Osterville neighbor well. And even if we don't reside physically in Osterville, that we would love our next door neighbor well, that we as a church would choose specificity. And God, we're believing you for this. We know that you are just so capable of doing incredible things when the church chooses grace. Help us to say yes more. Help us to see the yeses that we can say. Help us to love well. In Jesus' name we pray.